My name's Bill Boyd. I'm the senior pastor at Covenant Presbyterian Church down on Lakeshore Drive. Um, I'm friends with Will Spokes and uh, very pleased that he's now in Birmingham. I'm actually friends with Alan Carter, who is the senior pastor at Faith Presbyterian Church, and he's also worshiping with us tonight. And I offered the pulpit to him, but he wouldn't take it. Um, But Martha, my wife and I, she's not able to be with us. We have four children, ages 17 to 5. And uh, let's pray. Um, But uh, So she's at home dealing with them, but she loves to come here as well. And this is kind of our... We do what Alan and his wife are doing at times. We uh, will show up and just worship with you when we have that opportunity. So it's a privilege to be here. I've been thinking a good bit lately about mercy. And the reason is, is that um, this fall, we've done something that we don't normally do. And that is we've taken one particular passage and kind of camped out on it for a little while. And the passage is Romans uh, chapter 12. And if you're familiar with that passage, it's actually printed in your bulletin, and I'll read it here in a moment. But it it begins uh, with Paul, after 11 chapters of giving this detailed treatise uh, on doctrine, uh, good doctrine, uh, really what Paul's doing is he's kind um, kind of explaining the Old Testament, in a sense, and how it all points to Jesus, uh, to the church in Rome, but... After that, he pauses and says, therefore, in view of God's mercy. And that, that phrase, God's mercy, is those two words is what he uses to summarize everything he said for 11 chapters. So I want to read that for a moment and then just have us consider for a few minutes why mercy is such a big deal. The Apostle Paul to the church in Rome I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, or you can translate that, reasonable worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, if the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. 
Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's all. (laughs) It's one of the best, really, summaries of the Christian life that we have in the Bible. And as I mentioned to you earlier, I've been thinking a lot about mercy after looking at this, because I realized that in order to really understand a lot of what uh, Paul's saying from, say, verse 3 onward, or in order to really take it seriously in any kind of meaningful way, and not just take it seriously, but actually delight in it, in living this way, Paul seems to think that doing all of that hinges on our apprehension of mercy, and in particular, our apprehension of what the mercies of God are. And here is kind of some hard news about that. I'm not going to call it bad news. I'm just going to call it hard news. I mean, every culture and every time in which Christians have lived in has had kind of hard news for people to deal with who are Christians. And here's some of the hard news for us as Americans living at the time in which we live. We actually live in the midst of a culture that knows very little about mercy. And when you live in a culture like that, it it can begin to be hard to actually know what mercy is. Another way to put it is, I think it would be rather easy for us as Christians, especially living in something like Southern culture, to think that we know what mercy is and actually to have very little idea of its practical consequences in our lives. Here's one thing that got me thinking about this recently. Um, One of the periodicals I get to try to just kind of stay up on what's going on in the world and keep my mind, you know, it's kind of like stretching physically. You have to stretch your mind, is is The Atlantic. And um, The Atlantic uh, is a magazine that's been, I don't know, it's been around a long time, and for a long time it's been known for having people who write in it who actually are really good writers. Now, there's nothing Christian about the magazine. (laughs) Far from it, actually. But recently, about three weeks ago, on the cover of the magazine... Um, it was highlighting an article written by kind of the new big writer for the Atlantic, and it's a guy named Tennessee Coates, you may or may not be familiar with. T-E space N-E-H-I-S-I space Coates, C-O-A-T-E-S. 
Tenacy Coates is a fairly young African-American man. He grew up in Maryland, uh, in Baltimore. His dad was a member of the Black Panther Party. Uh, those who are kind of subscribing members of the Black Panther Party don't believe in marriage. His dad had four wives at the same time, all his growing up years. Um, and through a, an interesting set of circumstances, uh, his dad actually also operated a publishing house. He was a very bright man. And uh, Tenacy ended up being able to go to a pretty good college in the Northeast. Though he never graduated from there, um, he began to write, and he just has a real gift for that. The New York Times actually offered him one of their highest positions as a staff writer, and he turned it down in order to work for the Atlantic. And if you want to know anything about kind of the issue of race in America from the African-American perspective, and don't get me wrong, this is a radical perspective. Tenacy Coates says that he is an avowed atheist. He's not a Black Panther, but he also um, is a pretty radical kind of guy, and he's an angry man. There are a lot of African-American scholars who write on race who don't really like him because you read him, and you kind of just feel angry after you read him. That said, he is where he is because he's no dummy. And the article that he just wrote has some amazing statistics in it that actually are true. And what he does with those, I think he could present them in a way that would be more constructive. But here's some of the stats that he gives that have kind of stopped me in my tracks a little bit and made me realize I'm not sure that... Well, it just made me think that at least in terms of certain aspects of the culture around us, I don't have a very merciful point of view. For African-American men who were born in the 1970s in the United States, there is a 25% ratio of those who were born in the 70s who have been in prison. If you're an African-American male, there's a one in four chance, if you were born in the 70s, that you have done time in prison or you're still in prison. For African-Americans, the phrase, the war on drugs, for the most part is translated as kind of the uptick in really putting the thumb on drug-related crimes, and it's the uptick that doubled the rate of incarceration in America twice. It doubled it once, and then it doubled it again. To the point where that two years ago, the stats were that 767 people out of 100,000 in America were in prison. Now, just to do a little comparison... In Russian, under Putin, there are 405 people out of 100,000 who are in prison. Currently in America, there are 500,000 more individuals in prison than there are in China, at least as much as we're aware of. Now, I had someone challenge me on this. And I told him, I said, the truth is, I don't know the accuracy of the stats, although Tenacy Coates actually has notes, you know, I mean, he, he, he's quoting from some of the, the key experts um, 
on prison in America, which is a, a big topic among Republicans and Democrats right now. It's actually something they somewhat agree on. But I know this much, that those are astounding figures. And the whole point of his article was that for African Americans in our culture, prison has become something that's just kind of a rite of passage. Here's the other thing that really got me. Right now, the current, you know, information is, is that if you're a white male and you've done time in prison, you have a better opportunity at getting a job in America than if you're a black male and you've never been to prison. In other words, the prison situation is a train wreck. And part of the train wreck of it is that it intersects in a really deep and difficult to understand and deal with way with the racial background and the racial problems that have existed in America and in places like Birmingham. Now, as a Christian, I think one of the things that we're liberated from is offering simple solutions to complex questions. God doesn't do that, and he doesn't call us to do that. And so I don't know what we should do about that, but I do know this much. I mentioned reading this article to an African-American friend of mine who's a pastor in Birmingham. We were eating supper together, and he stopped eating, and he said, Oh, Lord Jesus. He said, Lord Jesus, what are you up to? He said, I never thought I would sit across the table from a PCA, white, you know, over-the-mountain pastor, and A, that he would tell me that he had read Tennessee Coates. He said, I don't even know what to do with that. He said, but the second thing is that he'd want to talk about it. And I said, well, for me, the big deal wasn't Tennessee Coates. I didn't even know who he was. But the article, and it's a long article, rang true with me because I grew up in the Deep South and I went to public school. And I knew African-American guys who literally had no chance from the day they were born. I had a, quote, friend in ninth grade who smoked pot with his dad in the attic all the time. I don't know where he is today, but I know this. He had no chance, ever. And so as I've been thinking about this, my main line of thought was not simply about the prison problem, although that's one of them. But I started thinking, wow, if we live in a culture where one of the key ways that we've dealt with problems is just to kind of banish folks. You know, the war on drugs had a three strikes and you're out rule. What that meant is if you were caught for drug possession three times, you were put in jail for a long time. You could be 16 years old, and you could be put in jail for virtually the rest of your life. Now, that didn't happen with many white kids who were living over the mountain. If you were a black kid, and you had never known your dad, and you had no one to advocate for you, That's probably what was going to happen with you if you were caught dealing drugs. Dealing drugs is a big deal. I don't think it's a small deal. But I thought, wow, 
in our time, as we look back on bad, bad situations historically and go, how in the world did people live in those kind of situations and not do anything, you know? I started thinking, huh, if I was a young African-American guy, I don't think I would trust people like me. Or at least I would be pretty cynical about a white pastor who talks about the gospel but represents, at least in their eyes, a culture that doesn't seem to be very merciful. And again, I don't know what the solution is. The point is this, though. The Bible seems to emphasize over and over and over again that mercy actually is something that we have a really difficult time coming to grips with. And, of course, the spin that the Bible puts on it is that in order for us to begin to become merciful people, and think of it this way, mercy is, a, is an essential component to wisdom. It's not just a thing in and of itself. But if we're to live wisely and begin to try to figure out how we deal with complex situations... Mercy is one of the key things we have to understand, and in particular, the mercy of God. And so in trying to figure out a little more, well, what does Paul mean by mercy? How better can we understand mercy? I was reminded of a story that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 18, and that's what I just kind of want to walk through for a few minutes uh, in closing, you might say, tonight. To give us all something to kind of meditate on and ask ourselves, yeah, what does it mean to begin to come to grips with the reality of mercy, of God's mercy, of having received mercy, so that we might better understand what it is to be sent out into the world as purveyors of mercy, you might say. So in Matthew chapter 18, you might remember, if you have your Bible, you can turn there, or, or if you have your phone, you can look it up on your phone, or you can just listen like people did for centuries. But um, I'm fine with any of those. Uh, but in Matthew 18, Jesus, there's this kind of famous passage where Jesus is talking about how to address the brother who sinned against you. And you go one-on-one, you, you basically try to keep it as small as possible. So you go one-on-one. If that doesn't work, take a friend. Keep it quiet. If that doesn't work, then you come to the leaders in the church, the elders. You know, and things kind of escalate if they don't work that way. And Jesus then says, I say to you, to the disciples, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he says that famous phrase, where two or more are gathered in my name, there am I among them, you know. And so Peter, you know, he's always interesting to hear. Um, Peter, listening to all this, I think his conscience is kind of bothering him. He also kind of likes to show off. And so he says this. Peter comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? It's an interesting way to put it. Peter says, Lord, all right, this whole deal about If someone sins against you, here's how you deal with it. Here's the deal. So how many times do I have to do that? Like, so if they sin against me, I'll do that. And it, but but how many times? And, And Peter says, actually, he says, as many as seven times, which in Peter's mind, he's probably going, because the law 
required three. It's pretty good. And Peter's doubled that and added one. So he's in safe territory. And so Jesus responds to Peter by saying, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Eek. (laughs) Because if you're like me, or like Peter, you're thinking, that's too much time. Because life's short, and if someone sins against me 490 times, and I have to spend that much time reconciling with them, there's not going to be a whole lot of time for anything else. And all we're told by Matthew is that Jesus says that, and then Jesus moves on into a parable or a story. Jesus says this. Look, he says, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle them, someone was brought to him who owed the king 10,000 talents. Peter's just asked, how many times do I have to, you know, forgive my brother and go through this kind of rigmarole you've been talking about, Jesus? And Jesus starts telling a story. Jesus is always telling stories like this. And Jesus starts in, and I guarantee you, all of a sudden, he has Peter's attention. Because Peter has, has been pretty impressed with the fact that he has offered up seven times. The next thing he knows, Jesus is offering up 490 is something to think about. And then Jesus starts telling a story, and the story begins this way. A man begins to settle accounts, to deal with debts that are owed him. And a man is brought to him who owes him 10,000 talents. Now we're way beyond 490. Because you may be aware of how much money 10,000 talents is. 10,000 talents is 200,000 years wages. Let me say that again. 10,000 talents is 200,000 years wages. A friend of mine who kind of has a gift for this kind of stuff did the math on it. Like, it's way, way beyond Bill Gates. That's what the man owes. And so you could say, well, that's preposterous. Who could ever owe that? I don't know. It's a story Jesus is telling. Although I will say this. As people have looked at it over the years, the only kind of person who could kind of owe that to someone else would be someone who was kind of like the director of the treasury for a king, you know. In other words, this is pro- this probably involves theft. It's the only way you could ever really pull this off. And what we read is this, is that the man owed his master 10,000 talents. And since the man could not pay, the master ordered him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made based on what they were worth. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring his master, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And let me tell you something. There have been a lot of stupid things said in history. But this is near the top of the list right here. The man owes 200,000 years wages. And he kneels down and he says to his master, just give me time and I'll pay it all back. That's crazy. 
That's preposterous. It's yet another thing he's doing that should actually anger the master. Because everyone knows he's not, he has not come to grips with the reality. And what we read is this. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. You may be familiar with the story. The man relieved, without a doubt, goes out from there. And as Jesus tells the story, this man who's just been forgiven what he could never repay finds one of his fellow servants who owes him a hundred denarii. Now, in order to understand the story well, I think it's important that we understand that a hundred denarii is actually not a small amount of money. You know, that's actually about 200 days wages, depending on how you calculate. But it's not a small amount of money. I mean, let's call it two-thirds of a year's salary or something like that, maybe a little less than that. It's a decent amount of money. And it's the kind of money, actually, that if someone were to get on their knees and say, please give me time, I can pay you back, it's a lot of money. You know, let's call it, I don't know, $60,000, $80,000, $100,000, somewhere in that range in our culture. If someone owed you that, and they couldn't pay you, but they begged you and said, I will, you know, get another job and I will pay you. That's, that's actually a possible thing. And we read that the man seized, the, the man who had been forgiven seized the one who owed him a hundred denarii. He began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. And so what happened was, His fellow servant fell down and said, have patience with me and I will pay you. But the man refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had happened. And so the original master summoned the man that he had forgiven and said, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, says Jesus, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. You know, the word mercy in Latin means price paid. It's the same, it's the root of the word merchandise. Mercy is price paid. Merchandise is what is paid for, right? And part of what Jesus is getting across here is that the reason Mercy is something that we don't have a whole lot of knowledge of personally, is that it's very costly. 
And we tend to be averse to things that cost us a lot. Actually, the definition of mercy is when you have the right to exact something from someone else and you choose not to exercise that right. That's what mercy is. It's kind of like forgiveness in motion, you know? Mercy is always this active thing that's shown. Someone actually owes you something. You have the right to get what they have. Because what they have is actually yours. And you choose not to exercise the right. That's what mercy is. Of course, there's a a lot of directions we could go with Jesus' parable. But here's what I just want to hone in on this evening. It would be easy to simply think that the good news of the gospel is that we owed 10,000 talents, so to speak. You know, that's symbolic of what we owe God, and God has forgiven us that. And therefore, we need to not be like the master who was forgiven and then went and exacted, sought to choke his friend who owed him much less. I mean, it would be easy to think, all right, here's what the gospel is. God has really, really forgiven us more than we could ever know. And we need to do everything in our power to not be like man number two, you know, who got forgiven but wouldn't forgive his neighbor, right? Here's the problem with that. If that's the meaning of the passage... If that's ultimately where where to go with that, it's not good news. And the reason is this. Every single one of us in the room have done what that guy did. See, what Jesus is trying to get across is not just that a great debt has been paid. But Jesus wants us to know that he has come to offer mercy to people who don't want it. Jesus has come to offer mercy to people who hate the fact that God is a merciful God. In other words, Jesus has come to change us from the inside out, so to speak. Because we're not just the ones who owe God a great debt. We're also the ones who the debt we owe him is because we hate our neighbor over and over again. We're like addicts. And mercy's not what we're addicted to. Vengeance is what we're addicted to. And I don't know about you, but do you ever feel kind of your blood pressure rise and you think, I just can't help it? I'm angry. That person owes me something, and dang it, they need to do X, Y, and Z, whatever. Here's another way to put it Jesus in this passage is bringing Peter and all of us face to face with the fact that sins committed against us. Always, and I mean 
always seem larger than sins we commit against other people. Like sins that I commit against other people, you know, those sins weigh about 14 pounds. Sins that people commit against me, you better get a fleet of dump trucks. Because that's how much they weigh. But see, this is the good news of the gospel. When the Son of God took on flesh and then ultimately went to the cross, Jesus wants us to know what he's about to do, it's not a small thing. It's not even a gargantuan thing. It's something just totally beyond our imagination. It's totally beyond anything we even think we need. And Jesus goes to the cross before the disciples ever even realize what their need is. And in many ways, the Christian life involves coming to grips with just how much mercy has been shown us. And then beginning to figure out what it means to be people who now know that there is this unending, never get to the bottom of, pile of resources that can be applied to people who need mercy. Christians throughout history are people who have realized that not only have we been shown mercy, but the price paid, right, the mercy, comes from an account, which is the blood of Jesus Christ, that can never be completely tapped. Matter of fact, you you won't even begin. So that one way to think of Christians is, is that when God forgives us, he brings us into his household and then he hands us this checkbook. And it's a checkbook and the checks we write are drawn out of his account. You can't bounce one of those. And the Lord then says to us, guess what? If you're a child of mine, you're a steward of my riches. My riches are your riches. And so you now have the privilege of doing what I do. You can go out and you can write checks of mercy, both large and small, whatever seems fit. Because you now get to be like me. Does that make sense? How else do people know about mercy except if they're shown it? Christians throughout history have not been just people who speak about mercy. Don't get me wrong. I'm a pastor, you know? I'm called to speak. But I'm not just called to speak. I'm called to live in a way that shows that what I'm talking about, actually, there's a connection between it and me, you know? And so I've started thinking, you know, what would it look like for us to value God's mercy above all else? I mean, think about it this way. 
Do you realize that because God has shown us mercy, you and I can be okay whether or not other people show us mercy? Now, that's a big deal. We just read in Romans 12, we're, we're supposed to not repay evil with evil, but we're supposed to repay evil with good. People criticize you, we're to have a gentle answer. Why? Because we've been shown mercy. The second thing is, though, I think what mercy does, the mercies of God give us perspective on how God wants us to give. Paul seems to think that only the mercy of God that has been shown to us in Christ will give us the kind of perspective, the kind of wisdom that we need to navigate daily life in a way that's actually not of this world, but in a way that shows that we are being transformed by the renewal of our minds. I don't know what all that means for you. I don't even know what all it means for me. But I know this, ever since I've been meditating on this, it has given me a lot to think about in terms of the way I relate with my senior in high school who lives in a world where everybody's supposed to be exceptional. And I'm one of the people who kind of acts like he's supposed to be exceptional all the time. And I've started thinking about, yeah, what does it mean to be married to a guy like me? Who kind of always expects my wife just to kind of do the right thing. Whether she's tired or not. And who always expects people to respond to me well, even though I don't always respond to them well. And what would it mean for me to begin to realize that there are groups of people in our city who just assume that mercy doesn't exist for them? At least when it comes to dealing with people like me. Or like us. I mean, think of it this way. It takes a lot of faith for African-American churches to look at churches like this and think that we actually believe the gospel. I mean, you may be scared to go into certain parts of town, and you might should be scared to go into certain parts of town, but there are also Christians who live in those parts of town. And I realized after talking with my African-American pastor brother, I thought, oh, He's praising God that I'm even beginning to come to grips with something that he has kind of thought I never would come to grips with. Ouch. Whew. The good news, though, is there is always mercy. For those who want it. And God not only shows us mercy. But through his Holy Spirit. 
He creates in us the ability to see more and more how much we need it, and even more than that, how much he loves to give it. And then he allows us to share in that kind of ministry. That's why the fruit of the Spirit is the fulfillment of the law. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithful, self-control. All of those things are just ways that we show mercy. And ways that mercy has been shown to us. Well, I need to close here. But one of the reasons I love having the Lord's Supper every week is that it's an application of what we're talking about. Because God's about to show us mercy once again. And it's going to be effusive. And the only thing you're going to be able to do is say thank you. That's all you can say when someone shows you mercy. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, it is difficult to know what to say. And so we just simply say thank you. And Father, we pray that our gratitude would grow in such a way that we truly begin to love our neighbor as ourself. Because we begin to come to grips with the way that you have shown us patience and kindness and mercy. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.